You grow in the Christian life, not by what you earn, but by what you learn and apply. You are rooted, Paul says. You are built up. You are established in the faith. And you are overflowing with thanksgiving. The problem is not that we want to grow more intimate in our understanding of who Jesus is, not more intimate with who He is, a deeper experience of grace. That is a good and right thing. Paul says, yes, long for that. Want to grow more intimate in your relationship with God. The problem is, Colossians, you have used the wrong methods to achieve that. Welcome to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. While Paul was in prison the first time, a story that you can read about in Acts 22 through 28, a man visited him by the name of Epaphras. Epaphroditus is probably his given name. Epaphras is what they called him for short. And he said, hey, Paul, I have an issue. I heard the gospel, of course, from you in Ephesus. And I went back to my hometown, a little country town called Colossae, and we planted a church. And it was thriving and growing. And then there were a group of people who came in and they persuaded a large majority of the town that it is not faith alone that saves. It is faith plus certain rituals. It is faith plus certain deeds. It is faith plus other doctrine that we must believe that is different than the gospel. And so Paul, a year after he wrote a letter to the Ephesians, he wrote a letter to the Thessalonians, which, to the Colossians, which was then to be read also to the church at Laodicea. And what Paul says is, it is a good and right thing, friends, to desire to grow in the Christian life. The problem is not that we want to grow more intimate in our understanding of who Jesus is, not more intimate with who he is, a deeper experience of grace. That is a good and right thing. Paul says, yes, long for that. Want to grow more intimate in your relationship with God. The problem is, Colossians, you have used the wrong methods to achieve that. And so Paul says that the first principle of the Christian life is that just as you started with Christ, so also you continue with Christ. You never get past Jesus. You never get past the gospel. And so he says, just as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so also walk in him. Well, how do you do that? You are rooted, Paul says. You are built up. You are established in the faith and you are overflowing with thanksgiving. So let's read these words together. If you'd stand together, and we're going to read them all together, just these two verses in Colossians chapter 2. And then we will look at a third image of being established in the faith this morning. Let's read this all together, shall we? Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore... 
As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we pray on this day, especially for the mothers in this room, that you might pierce our hearts with the truth and beauty of the gospel once again. And that you might show how your living word changes us through its preaching and its explanation. And so, Father, would you make your son beautiful? Would you show us that Jesus is far more beautiful and believable than we could ever have imagined? Give us just a taste of that today as those who don't know you run to faith for the first time and as we run to the table together to celebrate your body and blood to strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. You grow in the Christian life not by what you earn, but by what you learn and apply. You grow in the Christian life not by what you earn, but by what you learn and apply. The next three are present participles. You are being built up. You are being established just as you were taught, and you will overflow with thanksgiving. And when you get to this third metaphor, he gives this agricultural metaphor of being rooted. He gives this architectural metaphor of being built up in him. And then he gives this um, legal metaphor of being established or being confirmed. The Greek word is bebe omenoi. Bebe omenoi. And it means to be confirmed in the marketplace or to be confirmed in a court of law. In a technical sense, Paul means that you have transferred property from one entity to another. For example, you see this in other places. He uses the same Greek verb. In Romans chapter 4, he writes, This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. Or Romans 15, verse 8. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faith truthfulness in order to confirm. But by omenoi, there's the, there's the verb. To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Same legal word. 1 Corinthians 1.8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.7, our hope for you is unshaken, firm, established. For we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Or 2 Corinthians 1, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and he has anointed us. Us. It is a legal term that means to establish, to strengthen, to sustain. And he says that you have been established in what? What does your text say? It says you have been established, te piste, in the faith. Te piste is the Greek, with reference to the faith. And the emphasis here is, notice he doesn't say in your faith, although that's certainly implied. He says the faith. He's referring to a set of tradition that has been given to the people, a set of teaching. 
provided to them through the ministry of Epaphras in this young church plant in Colossae. Paul insists that this faith is in Christ Jesus the Lord, in the Christ, which means that he would have taught all about the Old Testament, the Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, which means that they would have learned all about the promises in the Old Testament. Jesus, his humanity, his presence among us, his ministry, the Lord, which is to say that he is not just something to believe, but he is the Lord of your life. He is the master and the one who has authority over everything that you are and do as a Christian. And this faith had a tradition. It had a set of teachings that guided the Colossians in the Christian life. And Paul says, you've got to maintain that. You've been established in the faith. One commentator writes, as you were taught, confirms the root digging, foundation laying, guarantee, providing character of the teaching in the establishing of a new church. The teaching was not something additional or less important than the gospel. It was basic and constitutive to a new community of faith. Just as you were taught, remaining true to the lessons which you received from Epaphras and not being led astray by pretenders. What they were taught was what Paul explained in Colossians chapter 1. Don't you want to know what they were taught? What were they taught? Like, what were the essentials? In Colossians 1, 3 to 14, Paul taught them that something you not hear me or did you lose my mic? Something extraordinary had happened. And that something extraordinary was so earth-shattering that Paul could not stop thinking God in the first part of his letter to them. It had worldwide importance. And that truth was that the gospel was bearing fruit, not only there in Colossae, but all over the world. That the world would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And that would be experienced by the forgiveness of our sins, which happens through the blood of Christ. And then in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, we see the astonishing significance of these Colossians coming to faith in Christ and that it was based upon who Christ is, the one in whom all things were held together. So not only was the gospel bearing fruit all over the world, but it all was being sustained in who Jesus was. He was reconciling and redeeming us and all creation through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension through the blood of his cross. And so the forgiveness of our sins, Paul says, is deeply personal, but it is part of a much larger story of how Christ is coming into the chaos of our world, ruptured by sin as it is, and he is reconciling us and all things in him because he holds everything together. And then Paul goes on in the last part of uh, chapter one before we get to our passage. And he says, and the strangest thing about all this is that God is accomplishing all of this now through the preaching of the word through servants like me and like Epaphras and like each of you. And so what Paul was commending to them was a faith that was a set tradition. And it was that the gospel bears fruit in life 
that the gospel is so much bigger than just our forgiveness of sins, though no less, but our forgiveness of sins and our personal salvation is in the context of a worldwide redemption plan that God has. And thirdly, that the way that we communicate this truth to the world today are through servants like the Apostle Paul, like Epaphras, like me, like you. That's the message of Colossians so far. One commentator has said, see what God is doing now by the gospel message in the world because of what he has done for all creation through Christ's death. And see the surprising way in which he is doing it. That sums up what Paul has taught them so far, just as you receive Christ. Now, let's drop this down a little bit. Let's talk more personally. That is what the passage teaches. That is what it says. That is the Greek exposition. Let's move it down into our hearts from our heads just for a moment. Who taught you? Who was the one who first helped you understand the beauty of the gospel? For many of us, it was our mothers, wasn't it? We are so grateful to have been born to mothers. You're watching mom, hi, who taught us the doctrines of grace and helped us understand what grace really is. Who taught you? Thank the Lord for that person. Be grateful for their presence in their life because what they taught you started you on a journey of what we call the doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification is the notion, the idea that God not only justifies you. He not only legally transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light because of his finished work, it's received. He did it for you. You gladly are a passive participant in that process, but you are being sanctified. You're being made more holy, made more like him. And as we grow in our sanctification, there are all kinds of alternative sanctifications that are not centered on the gospel that we are so susceptible to. For example, Sanctification begins with an inward change. But there are nominalists who believe that spiritual growth is optional, that church is optional. You ever met these guys? Some of you have been these guys. Some of you may still be these guys, right? Like, church is optional, right? I mean, I'm going to try the tent out because it kind of feels fun and it's kind of, you know, I don't know, it's kind of cool to come to a tent. The nominalist basically says, ah, you know, the Bible teaches that, you know, um, um, I'm saved, and so therefore the spiritual life really isn't necessary. Or the carnal Christian, which is the one who uh, has been invented to say there are those who believe, but they don't really actually live it. You can have faith in Jesus, but therefore you don't really need to do what he calls you to do. It's the carnal Christian. We all, we all see examples of this in our own heart. Or the passive Christian. We believe that we make no real contribution to our spiritual transformation, except to relinquish control of our lives over to God. We're, we're just passive. We don't fight sin. We just kind of say, oh, Jesus, if you're going to help me fight it, you'll help me fight. No, you got to fight it. You got to push against it and fight it, and you got to kill it. Based upon what Christ has done for you, you go to war over your sin. Or there's a kind of quietism, which is similar. It's, it's, it's the kind that just says, you know, let go and let God. This is the Keswick movement that many of us have uh, experienced. It's the higher life. It's the victorious Christian life. That holiness comes by faith, not by effort. 
No. Holiness comes by obeying what God calls us to do in light of what he's done for us. We don't switch those around. But it's not a kind of quietism where we're going to just live the higher Christian life and not have to actively pursue faith and learn. Remember, remember, you grow in the Christian life not by what you earn, but by what you learn and apply. That's the point of that metaphor in Colossians 2.7. Or there's the more religious kind, the kind that, you know, perfectionism, that I am going to strive for perfection and it can be accomplished in this life. No, it can't. Although you should try, but no, it can't. You should take heart together. That progress against sin, not victory over sin, is the goal of the Christian. So salvation is a process. Hagiosmos is the, is the Greek term. It's a process of becoming more holy like him, being established in the faith just as you were taught, growing in it. There is indwelling sin in the life of the believer, Romans chapter 7. We are at war. That indwelling sin does not have to have mastery over us, Romans chapter 6, 1 John chapter 3. The Christian endeavors constantly to bring holiness to completeness, 1 Thessalonians 5. The progressive work has likeness to Christ as its goal, Romans chapter 8, 29, or Philippians chapter 1. The entire sanctification is not ours until our bodies, however, are changed to be like his at the glorious resurrection of the last day. But we are to grow. We are being established in the faith as you become more like Christ. And that is our call together. So sanctification Unlike justification, which is an act, sanctification is a process of God's grace whereby our new nature is renewed after the image of Christ and enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 36, says it like this. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? And the answer, the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, an increase of grace, and perseverance therein until the end. The benefits, friends, are ours. The striking thing about this passage to me is that Paul says something that is so radically counter to so much of the values of our time. Let's take this even deeper and let's apply it in a very um, timely way. Someone has said that what is very likely to be taken for granted in one generation is ignored by the next generation and denied in the third. And I imagine that adage could be illustrated a thousand times over in church plants all over this country and all over the world. Institutions, especially religious institutions, are falling into disrepair and into the oblivion. But 
What Paul says is being established in the faith just as you were taught. He is calling us to preserve something that does at least three things. Number one, being confirmed in the gospel and understanding it in the, amidst the winds of the world reorients you toward what ultimate truth is. The God, I mean the gospel of God in the midst of a world of competition. It outlasts you and it empowers our children to see the beauty of the gospel as it is learned and applied through the example of older generations. And it puts us on the offensive, not on the defensive, which we've been, it seems like, for the last 20 years. It puts us on the offensive to love and serve the world with a gospel ethic that sacrifices. And that costs us something. Friends, when we have a building one day, the spirit of longing that you feel right now, the spirit of vulnerability that you feel right now, we cannot lose that. And we never intend to lose that in our church because we tend to go on the offensive to love and serve the world and to sacrifice for those who so desperately need to hear the gospel. So first, let me just talk about these three things and then I'll close. The gospel orients us toward ultimate truth, the gospel in a world of competition. Church attendance this year fell, according to Gallup polls. It fell for the first time since Gallup began in 1937. It fell below the majority level. It fell below 50%. When Gallup began in 1937, it was 73%. It remained fairly steady through the uh, mid-90s. And then in the 2000s, had a little bump because of 9-11 in this country at least, and then it has precipitously dropped. Now, we need to be aware of what is being taken for granted. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who is not a Christian, he is a rabbi, and he argues that there are two places where our culture has replaced the we with the I. That is, the self-centered perspective. And those two places have dominated our world for the last 20 years especially. And that is in the state and in the marketplace. And both of those are run through competition. They exist based upon competition. The state, competition for power, and the marketplace, competition for wealth. And what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, stay with me, is that all of our lives have been so dominated by the state, by politics, or by the market that we have been sucked into this competition framework where we are pursuing power or we are pursuing wealth. And what Jonathan Sachs puts his finger on is he says, that can't be the only way you live your life if you're gonna survive as a whole person. And indeed, as Christians, we know that the gospel is not about the competition for power on the one hand or the competition for wealth. The gospel steps outside of the two dominant struggles in our culture. And it says we are not pursuing power, not pursuing wealth. We are actually giving up power because Christ himself gave up all of his power so that he might come and live as a human being and die for us. And we're not pursuing wealth. We are giving our money for the sake of the world. We are striving to not be dominated by the market. And, and Jonathan Sachs says that we have been disoriented because we have been fooled to believe that everything either comes through the rise of power in politics or it comes through the rise of wealth in your personal finances and that we've been sucked into the cult 
of longing for what is new. And our culture, longing for what's new, buying the newest thing, giving into the consumeristic side of our culture, denigrates what is old. I mean, that TV you have from 2013, are you kidding me? That faith you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You still live in the 60s? And in the 1960s, by the way, they thought the dominant power and the biggest threat to Christendom was socialism. And they were right in so thinking that back then. But today, we see that the biggest threat to Christianity might be the market itself in the way that it's set up in our country. To dominate you and to rule you. I'm going to use another microphone. So, be aware of the fact that you are far more secularized than you realize, and you have to push against that with the sake of the gospel. You're established in the faith. Jude says you're st- that we contend for the faith, what? Once for all delivered to the saints, right? And the role of the institutional church today cannot be overemphasized because it is, if it's preaching the gospel, it preserves the gospel in a way that far outlasts you. The church body is not just an organization of members. It is the presence of Christ himself indwelling the hearts of believers, and it continues. Even when there are few in number, it continues to thrive when the gospel is preached. In a recent book called Nuns, N-O-N-E-L-S, where they came from, who they are, where they're going, Ryan Burge argues that the number of people who claim no religious affiliation began to rise in the mid-1990s. And he says that secularization, politics, and the internet have greatly contributed to that factor. And I'm saying all of these things just to connect, to take it a little deeper and to put it where we live that when we say that we want to be established in the faith just as we were taught, we've got to fight for that. And if you think that you are being discipled in the gospel, but you are not regularly feeding upon God's word, that you are not part of a community group where you're praying for each other, if you aren't continuing to come to worship, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but if you're not continuing to come to worship where God's word is preached to you, then you will not be able to resist the way that you are discipled 24-7 by the world. And if we think we can protect our children, we can't. Only in providing the offensive weapon of the gospel and reminding them of the greatest worldview in the world will we be able to equip our children and not take for granted the beauty of the gospel of Christ. Remember that you grow in the Christian life not by what you earn, but, what, by, but by what you learn and apply. Fathers, how are you applying it in your family? Moms, how are you applying it with your children? Christian, are you encouraging each other with these words? Are we growing in Christ's likeness together? That is what we're called to do. That is what it means to be established in the faith just as we were taught. It is a set of truths to be believed and to be cherished, and we've got to fight for it and hang on 
to it. And it also means you need to know other Christians in this town, not just people at our church. And you got to cling to them and affirm them and encourage them and not be us, them. Are you kidding me? Who's impressed by that? The world is running so fast towards secularism and denying all kinds of religious affiliation. And you're bickering about your church. I mean, come give me a break. Love them. Encourage them and point them back to the gospel. And by your gospel ethic, they too will see the beauty of Christ and we will begin to be, yes, one church, Trinity Presbyterian Church, but we will lock arms with other brothers and sisters in joy because we are established in the faith just as we were taught. In a world of competition, it is only the gospel that empowers us and equips us to outlast the fading trends of our day and to equip our children to see the beauty of the gospel as it is learned and applied by those of us in the older generation. And it activates our gratitude, something that we will think about together next week. So remember that you grow in the Christian life not by what you earn, but by what you learn and apply, established in the faith, just as you were taught, sustained, confirmed, cling to it. It orients you in a world of shifting winds. It reminds you yet again that the gospel is what outlasts. It is the heart of your legacy to your children and to your family. And it puts you on the offensive so that you don't have to be fearful. You can look to the one as Paul said earlier in Colossians, who subdues all things to himself, in whom all things hold together. And he wants to invite you into his presence, even as he offers you his body and blood, as Pastor Scott leads us this morning. Do you see him? Do you see the beauty of what we're doing here? It is far bigger than you and me. Cling to that truth. Fight for it. Know God's word so well, but let it drip into your heart and be lived out through your hands and feet by the power of your Savior who equips you by his finished work, glorious resurrection, and indwelling spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us not take our faith for granted. Would you, Father, equip us to help the next generation not ignore it, but to treasure it? And Father, would you equip us to be people who are continuing to grow in your holiness and likeness in light of your finished work for us? And Father, we pray all these things In Jesus' name, amen.